The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God Almighty, what a blessing it is to sing songs about our Savior Jesus. I am so thankful for the time that we could gather here as a church, that we could lift up our voices, that we can think even of this song that was just sung, of this baby boy that would one day heal a blind man, that would speak and calm a storm. God, that would one day go to the cross and die for us. We have life because of that baby that was born incarnate. And Lord, we seek the Savior together now. As we open the word of God, even as we consider God wrestling with Jacob, the man that he gripped the, de- the, the deceitful and the cheater would one day, through his line, produce Jesus. God, you have humbled yourself over and over again to draw us near to you. Continue to do that work now. Draw us near to you. We need you to guide us by your Holy Spirit and show us a wonderful truth from our passage today that we would walk by faith, trusting you every step of the way. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Please have a seat. So wonderful to be in this season of Advent and in the celebration of Christmas, because when you think about it, nothing highlights the way God works better than Christmas. I mean, when the Messiah came into the world, he didn't come as people expected him to come. Even though the scriptures were there, the prophecies had been made, which God's people had, and they were fairly clear as to what was to take place, but the real events of life, the real events that people were experiencing, living under Roman occupation, being accustomed to a religion typified by the Pharisees and the scribes, meant that their expectation for Messiah were more in line with a nationalistic leader that would arise and expel the Roman conquerors and the occupiers. And this would then allow them to live as they wanted, under the law, with the sacrificial system left intact. And you might think, well, that doesn't make much sense. Why would they want that? But if you put it into the context of what the people of Israel were afraid of, it starts to make more sense. You see, Israel was afraid of losing their identity. They were afraid of losing that which they believed they were. That was their understanding of the way God was to be worshipped and and, and all the traditions that went along with it and in the way that the Pharisees and the scribes said, this is the way it's to be done. That was their standard. 
And this understanding in the time of Jesus had clearly morphed over time. So we have the faith of the patriarchs, which we're studying about. It's a, it's a trusting God. God speaks, they humble themselves, and they trust what God says. They make missteps along the way, but then God just graciously brings them along. But things had morphed over time, and God's people at times would walk with him, but then at other times would clearly step away and outside of God's will. They would defy what he had for them. And this was the, the Judaism that Jesus was born into, the Judaism that was there at the time of Christ's birth. This is what people around Jesus' time frame wanted. This is what they expected. This is what they'd come to be accustomed to. And they didn't want to lose their identity as the nation of Israel. The animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles was ripe. And although they were not at war, it would be wrong to characterize the time of Jesus' birth as a time of tranquility. It was anything but that. So when Jesus was born to this poor Jewish woman, a virgin in a stable in the little town of Bethlehem, they're the angels. The angels declared to the shepherds what had happened. And they, of course, responded with rejoicing and put themselves into motion to see what this thing was that the angels had told them about. But aside from Herod's maniacal plan to wipe out the youth that were about the age of Jesus, the arrival of the Messiah on the scene didn't have a massive impact to the people there of the nation of Israel. Now, we know it had a massive impact, but it wasn't the type of Messiah that they really wanted to show up. They were expecting something to have happened instantaneously. However, an impact did take place, and, and the Lord did work. Just think of Joseph, this man that was betrothed to Mary. God worked there in his life through the angel who was declaring to him, this is what's going to take place. It's what he told him. He's like, this woman whom you're betrothed to be married to is with child. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And, and Joseph has to trust this angel who tells him, this is by the Holy Spirit. And you are to take Mary and to take her as your wife. That's the word of God spoken to Joseph. And what does Joseph do? He accepts that. And he walks in it, knowing full well the shame that it's going to bring upon him and upon his wife and upon their household. And the disgrace that it would bring upon Jesus, who is to be born. But Joseph trusted the word of God. But the question is, is why? And this is the same question we face when the Lord is directing us by his word, church, and by his spirit, and in pursuit of his will. For Joseph, he had an encounter with the angel of the Lord. Oftentimes, the path we are being directed in is, is fraught with shame and ridicule, much like Joseph's path was at least in the world. 
So when we come to this time of year where it's Christmas, and even as was stated, I mean, so many people are caught up in this. This is a, a good thing. But the American Christmas is typically nostalgic. It's, it's not centered on Christ. There's hints of that. But it's usually get past that to the presence, right? Yeah, Jordan knows. That's what we're focused on. That's what we're focused on societally. But the original Christmas, it was scandalous. It was scandalous that the Messiah would come in such a way. But that was God's plan. That's what God spoke. That's what was put into motion from long ago. The people of Jesus' time wanted an idea of a Messiah. And what they received was infinitely more valuable. They wanted to be freed from Rome and the rule that Rome had upon them. But instead, they were offered freedom from sin and death and damnation. So here in Genesis, here in Genesis, Jacob is now in a similar pattern of predicament, he's been directed by God to return to the land of his kindred, okay? He's been directed by God. Seth took us through that last week, Genesis 31.3. Now, he could have potentially abandoned this idea and say, I, it's a bad idea, so I'm just going to stay in Padan Aram, near my father-in-law, and make life work. Or he could have turned in a different direction altogether and said, Okay, I'll leave Padan Aram, but I'm not going to go see my brother Esau. Because last time we were together, I left in a hurry because he was getting ready to kill me. But here's the thing. He's faced with the divine word of God. This is what he's being faced with, spoken to him. And that first took place a couple chapters ago in Genesis 28. You'll remember when he was departing from the land. He's all by his lonesome with his staff, and he curls up under the stars for a sleep, and the heavens are opened up. In 28.13, says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give to you and to your offspring your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in you, your offspring shall be, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land." For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That's the divine word of God that was spoken to Jacob. And then just last chapter. Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Genesis 31.3. So with the words spoken to Jacob, with the words written to us, what else is required to overcome our fears, and to trust God. Every time, every time the, the faith of, a, of an individual is tempered like steel, 
as we observe in the Scriptures, when God makes a point, He encounters that person. He solidifies what He has said, and they are sealed for His purpose. And to have an encounter with God is a grace beyond our comprehension, for He chooses whom He chooses. And the right response to such an encounter is the very focal point of our message. That is to cling to God with all your might. And your weakness will be overcome by his beautiful strength. We are to cling to God with all of our might. And our weakness will be overcome by his beautiful strength. Many here, many here have encountered God. And they have been left. You have been left with that indelible mark that God has a hold of you, upon you. And there are others that are being prepared, being prepared to have an encounter with God and to be sealed as a believer in Christ. And we know many are on their way, are on their way. And so we have much to learn from God's holy word. And I want us to be a church that that clings to God with everything we have, to embrace our weakness in exchange for his strength. Church, our first point today is, will God really do as he says? I'm afraid. Will God really do as he says? I'm afraid. Verses 1 through 8. Let's start reading with verses 1 and 2 from chapter 32. God's word says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Jacob is returning. He's returning to the land of his kindred. On his way north over 20 years previously, the Lord revealed to him in a vision that we just read, the angels coming down from heaven. The heavens opened and angels ascending and descending upon the earth. And what do we see here upon his return journey? He once again encounters angels. His trip up north is marked by an encounter with angels. His trip down south is now also being marked by an encounter with angels. This is a beautiful grace for Jacob. It's an encouragement and a reminder to Jacob, in spite of his fears, which we're going to get to in a moment, that he is being shown grace by God. And he's being shown grace by God in a powerful way. Christian, do you look for these same graces in your life? Sometimes we are desperate, desiring validation from God, and he knows us better than we know ourselves. So it's when when it's needed the most is when he's most gracious towards us. And when our eyes need to be opened and and ready to receive those graces. 
I believe Jacob was in one of those desperate times as he's starting to make his journey south, knowing what's before him. And it's known by most here that we are in the throes of a myriad of struggles as a church. And as one of your shepherds, I'm continually reminded that it's a responsibility of mine to be nourished by the word, by the word of God, and to provide nourishment to the body from the word of God. Because God's promises are important. They're what sustain us. They're what hold us up. They're what we need. And so we spend time together in God's word. Then I know I shared this with a handful of individuals already because it was it left a mark on me the other day, but Thursday when I was on my way home from Portland, on my way home from work, it was more stormy to the east than it was to the west. So I was driving from the Portland airport back towards the Hood River Valley, and as soon as I got in my car and started pointing east, I could see a, a portion of a rainbow. I couldn't see the whole rainbow, but I could see a portion of the rainbow. And it just stayed like in the same spot from when I got an 84 at 205 almost all the way past Troutdale. But it was such a beautiful reminder of God's promise. And as I got closer to the gorge, the rainbow filled out. It became a full rainbow. And it was beautiful. It was stormy down towards Hood River. It was stormy in the gorge. But going into that gate of that storm was a beautiful reminder of God's promise. And something that had never happened to me before, not like the angels that God showed to Jacob, but as I got closer and became basically within the rainbow, it parked off my left shoulder and traveled with me for a number of miles. And in my career as a fighter pilot, whenever I look over my left shoulder or my right shoulder, my wingman's there. The one that's going into battle with me It was such a good reminder to know that God and his promises are faithful and real and trustworthy. And I trust him. This is something Jacob is continuing to learn about the Lord. Taking steps of faith church, we're taking steps of faith together, much like Jacob, taking a step of faith. And here, before he gets to the section of his prayer, which is beautiful and we're going to cover, he takes some precautions as well. Let's read about those in verses 3 and 4. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. Let's stop there for now. But he's sending these messengers. He's, he's preparing the way. He knows he's going to have an encounter with Esau, and he's testing the waters. How is this going to go? He sends back 
to the land of his kindred, as he's going there, he realizes, I'm going to have to face my brother. This is going to be a tough reality. What is going to happen? He doesn't fully know what's going to happen. What he knows is God has directed him there. What he doesn't know, if he's, God's directed him there for his death, I mean, he has offspring, so the line issue is going to be taken care of. Remember, Abraham was very concerned about his line. Isaac was provided. Isaac was uh, concerned, and God provided in his, his life too. And here, Jacob has a fear of what's going to happen when he sees his brother. So he sends a message to solicit, hopefully, a favorable response. In verse 5, he says what he has accumulated. He says, I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. He's making the preparations. However, the messengers bring back information that makes Jacob question how favorable this reunion is going to be. In verse 6 of our text, it says, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. That's the report. This puts Jacob in a really tough position. In Genesis 28, which we read in the introduction, the Lord had declared the Abrahamic blessing upon Jacob very clearly. And then in the last chapter, he was urged to return to the land of his kindred. And on the journey, as it's beginning, he sees the angels again. I mean, clearly there are markers that God wants this to happen. But look, his fear is upon him. Verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps. He's afraid. He's afraid. And he immediately takes action. Immediately takes action, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Have you found yourself here before? Knowing that things are not looking good? Not seeing a way out? So you set a plan? You set a plan... Jacob's plan isn't a satisfactory. Jacob's plan isn't a satisfactory plan. Just consider. I mean, he's put in this situation where, well, now what? Which would I rather have survive? This half or this half? His plan is setting up for a sacrifice of half of what he has. That means his family. So that maybe the other half can survive. This effort seems so weak and helpless. You see, church, it was God who prospered Jacob. It was God who was with Jacob. 
And so it's going to have to be God that Jacob now turns to in this time of extreme need in his life. And this is getting us over to our second point now, which is the pivotal moment, calling out to God. We're going to be covering the pivotal moment when calling out to God happens really for every believer. There comes this pivotal moment. And it happens in this prayer that we have recorded in verses 9 through 12. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and of all all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered. For multitude. In the admitted inadequacy of his plan, and in the desperation of his situation, Jacob prays. A truly beautiful prayer, even a model prayer. And please notice that frequently this is how the Lord solidifies our faith as well. We know there's direction God is giving us to go down. We can sense that he's doing a work. But it's not until we turn to him, like Jacob turns to him here, and and prays like Jacob prays here, and gets to know God in such a way that our life really changes. You see here in this prayer how He cries out to God the way he knows him. You're the God of my father Abraham and the God of Isaac. That's how God's identified. And that's how he cries out to him as that God. And he incorporates the very words that God has spoken to him. We talk about that frequently when we talk about how do we pray? Well, pray the very words of God. Pray scripture. Jacob here prays the words of God. Following, I'm following your commands just as you spoke to me. I was listening, God. I was paying attention. And now I'm I'm praying that back to you. But in the prayer, there's this sure transition that occurs. A transition that's required. It's recognizing the unworthiness of the person. I am not worthy. He recognizes, I am not worthy of the favor that's being bestowed upon me. I am not worthy. And he prays this. And we see it repeatedly in the scriptures. When considering the holiness of God, there's really no other response other than, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy that God would interact in any way with a sinful human. The response is, I'm not worthy. And that goes for all of us here. 
As blessed as we are to be a part of God's kingdom, we have to remember that we are not worthy in and of ourselves. You don't come here worthy in and of yourself. I don't stand here worthy in and of myself. It's by grace, by grace from our Lord Jesus Christ bestowed upon us that we have anything. It's been granted to us. And this allows us to praise God. And that's what Jacob does. He turns to praising God. I believe that's what he's doing when he says, look, I've grown. God, you have allowed this to happen. It's by your hand upon my life that I've become more than just a lone man with a staff. But there's a multitude. There's two camps. How did this happen? Praise God. It happened because God's covenant promises. God upheld his covenant promises with his steadfast love and his faithfulness. That is characteristic God, and that is what he is about doing even to this day. And it's from this place that Jacob makes his petition, and he makes the petition for help. Along with his confession of fear, he fears that as a leader of his household, he has two camps. But these are not mere possessions, friends. These aren't nothing to him. This is his family. These are people he's lived with. These are his wives and his children, his men servant and his maidservants, and all the animals that have been multiplied within his household. They are his responsibility. Simply dividing them in two and hoping one survives is a woefully inadequate plan. And he acknowledges that before God and says, Lord, help. Help me. Here in this prayer, he is doing what I would hope each man in this congregation would do. Cry out to God for help. Protect in order to protect your family. Men of Pillar Bible Fellowship, you need to be crying out to God to help protect your families from the dangers that are out there, whether they are physical dangers, mental or emotional dangers, or spiritual attacks. That is your role. Cry out to God. Seek His protection and, and have that heart for your family to seek the Lord. Whenever an attack is rearing its head, pray to God and, and act decisively, men, in accordance with his word. We have his word, we know what it says, and we are to act according to it. And it's from this prayer, this prayer comes a new and a different Jacob. This pivotal moment has happened in his life. And we see a new Jacob emerge, no longer satisfied with dividing his house in two, hoping half might survive. Now he is set to go forwards, forward toward Esau, forward to the land of his kindred, to do as he's been called to do. And he, he does this, though, notice, taking wise steps. He sets the plan, the new plan in motion, with wise steps. And he's guided by the Lord the whole way. Look at what he does, verses 13 through 16. 
I think I'm in the right spot, yeah. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, lots of presents, Jordan, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. This is a lavish gift. I don't even know how to do the cost estimate on on what kind of a gift this is. But it is an immense amount of wealth that Jacob is transferring over to his brother Esau in a very systematic method. And we're going to see more of that as we continue in the text. But this is over 500 prize animals. And they're spaced out in order to have maximum impact upon their reception. In verses 17 and 18, we continue to see what these instructions are. He instructed the first, the servant with the drove, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present to my Lord Esau. And moreover, He is behind us. You see, it's Jacob's intention not to let Esau come and overtake him, but now to meet him along the way. That's his intention. He's going to meet him along the way. And this reminds me of the wisdom of Abigail. I don't know if you guys remember Abigail from 1 Samuel. She was the wife of Nabal. Well, Nabal had greatly offended David. Abigail catches wind of what's going on. And as a wise woman, she steps into action in order to avert a catastrophe. And now this is similar to what, what Jacob's doing. He's stepping in. He's stepping forward in order to avert what he expects to be his brother's wrath brought down upon him. He wants to appease that wrath. He wants to turn it so it's no longer wrath, but there might be some favor. And he's doing doing so using what God has prospered him with. It is by God's hand that he has all of this to begin with. Now he says, okay, well, I need to appease my brother, so I'm, I'm handing this over. It's not of any value to me if he comes and wipes out half of what I have anyways. These instructions continue, verses 19 and 20. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. For he thought, for Jacob thought, he wants to appease his brother, not simply to have his brother turn around and go another direction, 
and he wants to see his face. He wants to come before him and see his face. He thinks perhaps his brother will accept him. They didn't leave on good terms. Jacob the cheater cheated his brother's blessing right out of him in a most deceptful, deceitful, despicable way, with the help of his mother, no less. Very deceptive. But now, upon his return, this is markedly different. There's no cheating in this. There's a difference here. This drove after drove, the message that's being spoken or being sent from a man who has been undergoing a change because God has been changing him. The work of God in this man's life is remarkable. Verse 21, so the present passed on ahead of him and he himself stayed the night in the camp. This is stated here in verse 21 that Jacob stays in the camp. Then it's emphasized here in the next two verses as well. So this is a, you know, part of the importance of the story that Jacob is going to be alone. Verses 22 and 23. That same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. He sends everything. Everything goes. The emphasis is an all-in strategy. This is it. Everything is on the table. Everything's going before him. Everything. He's no longer simply dividing all he has in two, anticipating the worst. What he's doing is he's taking necessary steps of faith to go ahead. Necessary steps of faith to go ahead with what God has called him to do, and that is to return to the land of his kindred. But his staying alone, this is ordained by God for an experience that, he, that will leave Jacob permanently changed, transformed into the follower of the God of Abraham and Isaac that our Lord desires of all of us who are here. This brings us to our last point, which is in the presence of God, cry out to him and cling to him. In the presence of God, cry out to him and cling to him. Picking up in verse 24, and Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. This is a most bizarre account of God showing himself. We call these theophanies, when God shows up in, in the text, we call it a theophany. Here, God is presenting himself as a man. And I know it's near and dear to many people here in the congregation just how he presents himself as a wrestler. 
That's right. He's wrestling. He took it upon himself to interact with Jacob as a wrestler. Yes, the weight classes were a little mismatched. And don't think God was using a dirty trick when he touches Jacob's hip and causes it to go out of socket. That was a very purposeful action taken by the Lord. For church, consider now the position that Jacob now finds himself in. This man comes to him while he's alone in the camp. It's dark and starts wrestling with him. We don't get much of the dialogue until the next couple of verses, but what we know is that the absolute power of the man that is wrestling with Jacob is well known to Jacob by a mere touch of the man, the very center, the very core of Jacob's strength, the hip where everything in us pivots from is put out of joint. Jacob's very center, the very core of his strength taken away. And I really hadn't thought much about Jacob being a strong man. I just hadn't, as I've studied scriptures, until Karen at a community group reminded me that, well, don't you remember, like he went to the well and he moved the stone by himself. He didn't wait for a bunch of extra shepherds to show up. Oh, that's right. I always just thought Jacob being a man of the tents and Esau being a man that liked to go out into the wild. I kind of pictured Esau as the burly one and Jacob not so much. He's wrestling with God. And I think he thought of himself as a strong man, physically strong, accomplished. And what does God do? He takes that away. He takes it away. He humbles Jacob. He permanently changes him. His gait is never the same after this wrestling match. He removes his physical strength that he has relied upon, causing him to be in just the right place for what happens next. And this is the message for us, church. We want to be like Jacob after his encounter with God. Our own strength turned to weakness, and his strength and his work to be our only desire. Doesn't it seem like that's what's happening to us as a church? Our own strength being stripped away so that Christ can become our one and only desire? It seems like that's what's happening. We're being brought to a place where it's clearly God and God alone that is carrying us along. And so we're clinging to him. Jacob is clinging to God. God is in control of the situation. Have no doubt about that. He is God. He is in control of the situation in which he's wrestling with Jacob. God's in the control of the situation we find ourselves in. And we are to trust him. Even when we feel at times that the the strength is just draining out of us, we're to trust God. And look at Jacob's beautiful desire in the next verse. As God prepares to depart, in verse 26, we read, Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Can you picture this? Jacob's hip 
out of socket. Jacob's hip out of socket. Wrestling God Almighty. And all he can think about now is receiving a blessing from this man. Unlike any other man he's ever put his arms around. That's all he can think about. So God continues the transformation process of Jacob by going after not the core of his strength, but the core of his previous methods, gaining of the way he gained goods and the way he received blessing. He goes after what we see here in verse 27. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. What does this mean? What is, why is he asking? God doesn't need to know who he's wrestling. He knows it's Jacob. What he needs to hear is Jacob make a self-proclamation of who he is. I'm Jacob. I'm the cheater. I'm the heel catcher. That's what I do. It's who I am. It's what's been working for me. So that's what his name means. And that's what it's meant from the beginning of his life. And that's how he's acted his whole life. He's lived up to his name. He's allowed it to define him and his actions. But that is no longer what God has for his chosen. God has chosen Jacob. And so he says in verse 28, then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and have prevailed. The magnitude of this name change is is dwarfed in the moment, but we should take time to recognize the tremendous transformation that is ushered in through this encounter with God for the, the blessing of all the nations on the earth through this man and his family. For as God wrestles with him, think about this, As God wrestles with Jacob, the cheater, the swindler, he knows this man that he has his arms around will one day bear his own son through the line of Jacob to Judah, through to David, and then on all the way to the virgin birth of Mary. God's holding that man, and he's entrusting the line of his son, to bless all the nations of the earth, to bring forth the redeemer of the world. And in the delirium of his pain of having his hip recently put out of socket, Jacob asks the Lord in verse 29, then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. See, it's a desire of Jacob to know the name, the name of the one he's clinging to. But it's not God's prerogative to give his name. Even when Moses, as you recall, when Moses goes to the burning bush and he, he's being called by God to go back and bring the nation of Israel out of Egypt, He says, well, what am I supposed to tell the people? Like, who sent me? I am that I am. God, the all-existent one, says to be. I am that I am. 
the eternally existent one. And then in Judges, Samson's dad, he has a similar experience, Manoah. He asked the angel of the Lord his name, and his response is, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. That's in Judges 13, 18. It's not God's prerogative here to tell Jacob his name. But in verse 30, Jacob comes to realize this definitely was a special wrestling match indeed. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. In many ways, Jacob was protected by the darkness because in other scriptures, we know that man is not to see God face to face. He's to be hidden from God's glory. But in this night wrestling match, Jacob realizes what God has done. He's come to him. So with reverence and fear, Jacob recognizes the mercy and the grace that's been extended to him. Jacob had clung to God. He had clung to him with all his might. And his weakness had been overcome by God's beautiful strength. In verses 31 and 32, the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he, being God, touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. There's just this great reverence of this encounter. And it's passed on into the, into the very traditions of Jacob's offspring. You see, his life was forever changed that night. Forever changed. And that of his people as well. For now he carries on limping, touched by God. And church, this is the outcome of such a progression. The progression of Genesis 32. And it's no different in the life that many of us are living as, as sinners, any sinner, any person who has ever walked the planet goes through when, when we're faced with trying to answer the question, should I su- surrender my life to the Lord? We're all asked, with, we're all faced with this, this question. Should I surrender my life to the Lord? Do I really belong to him? This is where Jacob began in Genesis 32, in this chapter, working in his own strength and full of fear. So he had to ask, as do we, friends, will God really do as he says? Even as we admit, we're afraid. But if you are in a place such as this, do not be dismayed. For this sets up that pivotal moment, that pivotal moment that we even see Jacob and he's calling out to God. Jacob called out to God in prayer in that beautiful prayer we covered in verses 9 through 12. We all must call out to God. Our lives are changed in this manner. We have a hunger and a longing for him and him alone. And church, he provides the only fulfillment. When you're at his mercy and you recognize that you are at his mercy while simultaneously trembling 
to consider that he is God and he's a God of mercy and grace, he'll reveal himself to you. And he will impress himself upon you in a most undeniable way. In the presence of God, I urge you to cry out to him. Cry out to him and cling to him. Jacob did this for his all, and all was wrapped up in God's plan for his life. This is so much like the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. Seth and I talked about this at our elder meeting. So here's this Canaanite woman. She's, she's afraid. Her daughter has, is demon-possessed, oppressed, and she, she's heard of Jesus. She's heard of this man, Jesus, a Jew, a rabbi. And in her pivotal moment, when she was very afraid, she unashamedly went against the grain of her culture, against the norms. She cries out to Jesus, O Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Kneeling down, she pleads with Jesus, Jesus, Lord, Help me. Help me. And you'll probably remember as I start to to share, you see, Jesus spoke back and said, my mission is not to those who are not of the house of Israel. Wow. This woman came to him, desperate, afraid, unashamedly pleading. She answers back. Just like Jacob clung to God and would not let go, this Canaanite woman would not let go. There before the presence of Jesus, she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs off of the master's table. And he blessed her. And he said, let it be done as you have asked, for I have not seen faith like this in the house of Israel. She's a great example of faith. And God honors that in her life, answers the deepest need of her heart in in a way that was just such a blessing for her and her family. This woman took the steps that Jacob has taken, and each one of us must take, clinging to God, clinging to God with all of our might, And allowing our weakness to be overcome by his beautiful strength. Your life will be forever changed. Your name will be new. Your identity will be forever and always as a child of God. This is what happens when you cling to God with all your might. Your weakness is overcome by God's beautiful strength. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we spend time coursing through Genesis, we're reminded time and time again that it is by your your sovereign choice that you draw those to yourself, your elect, your chosen ones, and you do a mighty work with them. They, They really bring nothing, and we bring nothing either, other than a a pleading to have mercy upon us, to cling to you, Lord, not wanting to be let go, not wanting to let go, but trusting that once we have found you, there is nothing else that will satisfy. 
Lord Jesus, you have done that. You have made the only satisfactory filling of the hole in our lives caused by sin. And so, Lord, we turn to you time and time again as a church, as individuals, and we ask that you would feed us what is needed, that you would comfort us in our turmoil, and that you would sustain us in our time of need. And Lord, we trust that you will. You are proven. You are so proven. Your church is safe in your hand. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gathering of the saints this morning. We're grateful for the opportunity to turn our attention over to the partaking of the Lord's Supper, knowing what a beautiful promise is put upon display through the elements that you gave to us to celebrate each time we gather. Lord, as we celebrate Christmas this week as a church, we ask that we would be reminded, that you would remind us of what a special and significant effect that Jesus' birth had on all of humanity, the ushering in of the redemption of mankind by Christ coming, taking on flesh, becoming God incarnate. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done. May we cling to you today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.